That's a lovely new way to say the creed, isn't it? Steph just uh, brought us our Bible readings, uh, and it's Ephesians 4 that I want us to be looking at this morning. And I want to start in a strange place, and that is the notion of being called has fallen out of favour in our evangelical Christian world. It used to be common when people were entering ministry to be asked, do you feel called to the ministry? But that idea and that language has been jettisoned, and it's been jettisoned for good reasons. We probably know or have heard of people who justify their own desires by saying that they feel called to do whatever it is that they want to do. I was called to buy this car. I was called to take this job. I know that God has called me to be a bishop. That's true. And it just sounds so much more spiritual to say, I am called rather than I want. And it's also much harder to challenge a supposedly divine call to be a bishop than it is to challenge a person who says, I desire to be one. Uh, and so it has fallen out of favour, and it's fallen out of favour perhaps because it's, the suggest- it's so subjective, I feel called, it's about my decision. Perhaps it's about the other extreme as well, and if we use the language of calling, people can use that as an excuse not to take the difficult pathway of serving the Lord wholeheartedly because I don't feel called to do it. Or perhaps uh, when we use the language of the call, People enter full-time vocational ministry and what is for good reasons? It's not the appropriate place for them to continue, but they feel like somehow they're jettisoning the call of God if they move into other fields. There's all those sorts of reasons why people uh, don't use the language of call and so we don't use it very much here around Moore College. But for those of us who are Anglican, when you're ordained presbyter, the bishop charges you You have heard, my brothers, in your private examination, in the sermon, in the readings from Holy Scripture, how great is the dignity and importance of this office to which you are called. And now again I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you remember the dignity of the high office and the charge to which you are called, that is to say, to be messengers, watchmen and stewards of the Lord, to teach and to forewarn, to feed and provide for the Lord's family, to seek for Christ's sheep that are scattered abroad and for his children who are surrounded by temptation in this world that they might be saved through Christ forever. And so those who are about to be ordained are asked to reflect on whether they are fit and are called this most noble task because you cannot do it half-heartedly. It's a very powerful call. Very powerful charge. But it's not just the Anglican bishops who use the term call. Our our Apostle Paul does so unashamedly in our New Testament reading from Ephesians chapter 4. He starts off, I'm using the NIV, Paul starts off, As a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What is this calling that the Ephesians have received? And who is it who is called? Well, a simple study of the word called through the New Testament will show us a few things. Firstly, Christians, all Christians, are called ones. So it's not just paid full-time vocational clergy. 
all Christians are called ones. Secondly, Christians are called ones and they are called to God and to Jesus as Lord. That's what the call is. And thirdly, Christians are the called ones. They're called to God and to Jesus as Lord by God through the gospel. That's, a, that's my summary of the word calling in the New Testament. That is, every Christian is called and the call is to God himself. So don't lose the honour of that because call is our word and there is nothing better than being called by God to himself because the Lord of heaven and earth has called us to himself. And Paul in this verse says, this noble calling to which we are called, he urges the Ephesians and down through the days urges us to live a life worthy of that calling. So I want to explore with you, what would the life that is worthy of being called to God himself? Now, I don't know if it's fact or fable, but it makes a good story either way. It's claimed that Alexander the Great, as he was conquering the ancient world, because of his bravery and the bravery of his men, he moved east from Macedonia right across to Babylon. And in Babylon, he sat in the seat of Nebuchadnezzar's grand palace, where he sat passing judgment on people who were brought to trial. And a young soldier was brought to him who was charged with fleeing in the face of the enemy. Now, that's the complete opposite of what marked Alexander the Great. And apparently this cowardice greatly angered Alexander until he heard that the name of the young soldier was also Alexander. That information further enraged Alexander the Great and he declared, change your conduct or change your name. That is, Alexander, you need to live up to a, to a life that is worthy of your name. Well, what is the worthy life that God, God calls you? God who calls you to himself. How much more worthy could it be than that of Alexandria, Alexander? So what is the worthy life? Is it being the missionary to the farthest reaches of the world, to the unreached people groups? Is it that you've planted 20 churches in the last fortnight? Or <laughs> is it that you've stood up to the crusading anti-Christians that walk around Sydney? What do you think the worthy life would be? Verse 2. Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another in love. That's the worthy life. They are all simple words. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another in love. And what do those four words have in common? You can't do them by yourself. You can't be humble to yourself. You can't be gentle in isolation. You can't be patient when there is no other party. And you can't bear one another in love when there is no other. The worthy life is about relating well and rightly to others. Is that what you thought the life worthy of your calling would be? I ask you, we all have heroes that we want to emulate. Can they be described by these words? Is that what you aspire to be? Because Paul calls this the worthy life. And can you begin to imagine a world where relationships 
are marked by humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Imagine a world like that. Gaza, Ukraine, the United States, Australia, the school playground and our own family homes. What a world that would be if that marked us. But what is it that makes these four little words the worthy life? Well, Paul tells us in verses 3 to 6, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So did you see the trinity of couplets here? There is one body and one spirit. There is one hope and one Lord. There is one hope and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father. The reason for the worthy life being one of relationship is because of unity. The unity of God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. We just sang that a moment ago as we sang the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the unity of Father, Son and Spirit is what we're seeing together. And this united one creates his church and the things that mark the church are those of unity, united with the Trinity and united with each other. One body, one shared hope, one sure anchored faith, one baptism into the life of the one God. In case you didn't know, this is Reformation Day. And so I had to drop in a quote from Martin Luther. United... Adoration of the Father is as necessary for the Christian life as is prayer. Now our fractured world is running headlong in the opposite direction. Our world every day, its division, its identity politics, its critical theory, there are some councils that are raising Israeli flags and others that are raising Palestinian flags. But worthiness is not about my side winning, defeating your side, or even worthiness is not about an end to hostility. It's about unity. And the only way by which unity can be lasting is through the work of the united trinity. But how can that be achieved amongst us? Well, the answer, and you know it as well as I do, is that we need external aid. Society is divided because the spirit of division and my victory is the way every human being operates. And because every human being has that at our heart, so our society is corrupted as well. And that's seen even sadly in our own churches. Just think about your church. There is always the desire to be noticed and to shine at the expense of others. There is always seeking the victory of my position over the position of other people. And the way to overcome this division and this hostility is not and cannot be by positive thinking. It's not by slogans of togetherness. It's not by better education. Nothing less than the divine intervention of God is the only way. And here in this chapter, God describes the way he has done it. Here in chapter 4, you have God the Creator. God the Creator is in heaven and needs nothing. And we are his creatures 
We are unable to do what is best or right, even if we desire to do so. And the Almighty One of Heaven, from Heaven, showers gifts on His created beings in order to enable us to live the worthy life. Listen to how this connection is given here in verses 7 to 11. But to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. Now what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. You see, Christ gives gifts to his church. This is the grace that starts verse uh, verse 7. And here Paul quotes from Psalm 68. Psalm 68, if you were to turn to it, is a psalm about the majestic victory of God and because he is God who sits on his throne in absolute and total victory, he ascends to his throne and the people deliver to him their tributes and their gifts. But here Paul turns that image on its head because in Psalm 68 God declares that he receives gifts from people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, from that very same throne, God doesn't receive gifts, but gives gifts to his people. Now, giving and receiving happen in the one act, but the direction is different. In Psalm 68, God rightly deserves all tributes and gifts be given to him. But now from his throne, he gives gifts to his church. Let's spend a moment savouring that paragraph. Christ, in order to ascend, means that he had to ascend from a lower point. But he is the one who has always inhabited glory. Yet from glory, he descended to the lower earthly regions. Lower earthly regions could be earth, it could be to be a human, it could be Hades after his death. I think there are arguments in each, for each of those. But what we see here is the Divine One graciously gave himself. Gave himself from that ascended position to the lower earthly regions. Here is humble, gentle, patient, forbearing his creatures. And that makes no sense when the Eternal One does it for his creatures. This is grace. And now he has ascended higher than all the heavens. He is truly clothed in glory. And now Christ who has ascended to heaven, what's he doing there? Sitting back and saying, okay, now worship me. No, from heaven he is giving gifts. And the gifts you see there in verse 11. Apostles, that small group on whom Christ built his church. Prophets, those who remind people of God's word, drawing them back to God and applying his revealed word. Evangelists, the bearers of the good news. Because you are sitting here in this chapel as a believer, you must have been blessed by an evangelist who brought the good news to you. And he gives pastor teachers, those who feed you with God's word and stand by you as you grow in the life of faith. And these gifts of Christ, the ascended king, I ask again, what do they have in common? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, what they have in common is that they are all expressed in the church. Christ from heaven 
is giving gifts to his church. What a blessing it is to be in his church. If you want the gifts of Christ, you get them in his church. There's this nonsense that I keep hearing that says you, you can be for Jesus, but you can be against the church. Well, Christ is not against his church. Christ is giving gifts to his church. How silly it would be not to see the significance of the church and the unified church. And look at the results of the blessings of Christ, our ascended king, to his church. Verse 12, to equip his people for their works of service. Well, that's what the NIV says, but Lionel tells me that that's an interpretation of the word rather than what the word actually means. It's probably better to use the word ministry rather than the, the language of works of service. I noticed in the CSB that was read to us, they kept ministry. Ministry means bringing. And in the Bible, it is bringing the word of God to people. These gifts of Christ are the people so who, who bring his word to them so that they might grow. That the body of Christ may be built up. Again, our English translations, um, they've inserted the word up here because English readers like having a goal for a verb. And so, but the word is just the church might be built. I think the church of Christ is actually both built up and built out. That is, numbers growing daily and becoming more like our Saviour. That the church of Christ might be built, full stop. Until we reach the unity in the faith, ministry of the word that comes from the gifts of Christ our ascended King will lead us to being unified. Becoming mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. That is, the divine gifts of Christ are giving, given to the church to enable us to become who we are. See, what Christ is doing in heaven is not just making us a little better. The wish here, which is a wonderful wish, and I hope it's our prayers, is that we might attain to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. And then verse 14, No longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. That is, our world is not neutral. Our world is always trying to push people away from God. And as people come to maturity, through unity, they'll be strongly anchored in this world. And finally, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined together by every supporting ligament grows to build itself up in love as each part does, it, does its work. What do we do in unity in living the, wor wor the worthy life? It is speaking the truth in love. Truth and love. One of the problems is our hearts are invisible, so love can't be clearly seen. But our tongues are that which mirror that love which God has created in us. So make sure you use your tongues well. This is what we are called to. Every Christian is called to this task. And God gives to each Christian 
the gifts that we need to do this. Isn't that an incredible honour? And even more so, we who are given the double honour of being shepherds of the sheep. And so as I conclude, this is what I pray for me and this is what I sometimes pray for you. And make sure you have it blazoned on your mind as you continue in the fight, as you continue in the hard work ahead, remembering that Christ is at work giving you and his people these gifts to live the worthy life. So to remind you of the ordinal, even if you're not going to be ordained, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you remember the dignity of the high office and charge to which you are called. That is to say, to be messengers, watchmen and stewards of the Lord, to teach and to forewarn, to feed and to provide for the Lord's family, to seek for Christ's sheep who are scattered abroad and for his children who are surrounded by temptation in this world, that they may be saved through Christ forever. What a great thing to remember on Reformation Day. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you so much for this calling that you have granted to all Christians to be called to none less than you, the Divine Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so we ask you that you might, by the power of Christ, our ascended King, give us the capacity to live the worthy life of humility, gentleness, patience and the ability to forbear one another in love. Amen.